This is the Cover 2 Podcast with Don Banks and Nick Stevens. Brady on the deep drop, stands in, fires down the middle for Gronkowski, makes the grab at the 45, going away from defenders. He's gone to the 20, to the 10, to the 5, to the end zone. The Cover 2 Podcast on Patriots.com. The play fake and the throw to the end zone for Antonio Brown, touchdown Pittsburgh. Nobody covers the NFL like the guys from Cover 2. Eight different receivers have caught a pass. Matt Ryan today. He's looking to throw again. Wide open. Julio Jones has it. And in the end zone, touchdown Falcons. Now, Don Banks and Nick Stevens. Hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the Cover 2 Podcast. With Banks and Stevens, I'm Don Banks, joined by my co-host Nick Stevens, our producer Kevin Collins. It is Tuesday, November 6th, Election Day. Have you voted yet? If not, get out there and do it. Um... Want to look back at week nine in the NFL, look ahead to week 10. Um, but first of all, I just wanted to say a word. Uh, we kind of lost one of the giants in our business last week with the the passing of Paul Zimmerman, Dr. Z, as we all knew him. Uh, somebody I got a chance to be friends with and work with at Sports Illustrated um, until almost 10 years ago to the day he had a series of strokes back in November 2008. Um Dr. Z was 86 years old and really had not been able to communicate or write and barely talk in the last 10 years. But uh, his passing really does kind of close a chapter. Those of us who have done um, what he devoted his uh, career to, covering the NFL, um, know that he kind of helped create the genre as it exists today. Um, so I just want to say a quick word. He was a he was a delight to get to work with. I mean, he could be gruff and he could be completely curt with you at all times, but he was also kind of a teddy bear if you stood up to him. And uh, if he liked you, you were good. You were a made man. You were golden. Uh, Nick, one of the best memories I have is he would do the mock draft every year for the magazine, so he would get one bite out of the apple. It would go into print, and he would have to live with it. Always a, a little leeway time. I would get to do four or five mocks leading up to the draft. And if my last mock was outperforming, as I like to say, his mock. We sat right next to each other at the uh, like the Radio City Music Hall, and it would just kill him if I was beating him. <laughs> and and he was inconsolable, but he was pretty also pretty fun about it as well. And um, covering a game next to him was a, was a marvel as well because the man had charts and colored pencils and a stopwatch to time the national anthem. National anthem, quirky as they come, but a, uh, a, a trendsetter in our business. Growing up in a sports-centric house, Huge sports fans abounding in a sports-rich area like New England. When I used to always look forward to reading Sports Illustrated, especially before I could afford my own subscription, because I would always want to grab the back page and read Dr. Z, and I was a regular reader of it. He's one of the first guys I also remember as somebody who likes to traffic in and around sports entertainment yep. or trying to find the funny in sports from a sports fan perspective. Dr. Z was one of the true original sports wits, or at least one long before people in my generation went to places like Barstool or fell in love with Bill Simmons. Yeah. Dr. Z was one of the true original wits in sports, and that back page was a must-read for me and countless other fans my age. Yeah, he, you know, he did a mailbag for years yeah. on SI.com, and you got a little bit of everything. You got his... He was a total wine snob connoisseur. Right. He used to tell my wife and I where we had to go to in terms of Napa, Sonoma, which wineries, what to drink, what to stay away from. Um, you got Tales of the Flaming Redhead with his wife <laughs> uh, since 1997, Linda Zimmerman. Um, you, you got a little bit of everything. He he had interest in a lot of different things. So anyway, we just wanted to note his passing. He was uh, totally – it gets overused, but he was one of a kind. He was a unique individual. Um and now on to uh, a little bit of look back at, at <coughs> excuse me, week nine. Rogers Brady. I I feel like it fell a little yeah. flat. It wasn't. It was the game was not the heavyweight. Yeah, there was a little womp womp to it. Uh, you know, it and I'll have, tell you where it came from. It, it came from Ollie. the pa it came from the Packers. Yeah, that is just not a dynamic team. That is not an exciting team. And I and I I, I hate to say it, but. To me, the big difference between Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, as everyone, from the time it was announced on the schedule to last week, just filling up every available platform, all the bandwidth and the airwaves, who's better? Who's the real code? Who's that? Blah, blah. 
I, the, God, we knew the answer to that in the first place, and we didn't even need to get into it. But of course, you got to say something. To me, it was all just about seeing Rogers frustrate. I mean, God, the guy can make any throw. He can move anywhere he wants to. He's just he's a physical marvel, and he's a great quarterback. But the difference between the two is that Rogers, you, I could see from way up in the way up high in the stadium, that his body language just carried with him a frustration of knowing that his team around him just doesn't feel good enough, but that he's allowed that frustration to seep into his demeanor and his on-field play. Tom Brady has been saddled with teams that don't have a 17th of the talent. Sorry to put it that way, but that I don't think have a fifth of the talent that Rodgers, Packers, in 2018 have. But he refuses to, like, he'll get frustrated, he'll dress people down, he'll throw his helmet, he'll swear on the sidelines. I'm sure the swear jar at the Brady house gets loaded during some of those weeks. But he refuses to lose. And Tom Brady's refuse, refusal to lose and his competitive desire, that's the difference between the two. Rodgers will accept it. Brady will not. And that's exactly what we saw Sunday. I feel like Rodgers knows that this program has pretty much run its course. And I think he knows Mike McCarthy is out of answers. But why did he take the money then? I mean, well, it's a lot of money, but it's a lot of I, cheddar. I mean, I I think he still wants to be the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, but I think he realizes that this particular era has kind of exhausted itself in Green Bay. And yeah. they don't have the they don't have enough around him that he can will them to victory. Um now he still can do it. Second half in week one against Chicago, that late in that San Francisco Monday night game. Right. But he, that was I think him. he's frustrated. I think he's very frustrated. You could you could, you could see it because it's seventeen seventeen, and the Patriots. Josh McDaniels had an um, unbelievable night, unbelievable night. He really did calling plays. Except when they went down, when they had and goal in the third quarter, and the Pats but he kept them off balance for the most part. He, all he night. did. That was his only bad run. And then the Packers started driving the ball, and the Packers were driving towards a score that would have put them up. And then the Pats would have been playing from behind, and it could have been a different game. The Aaron Jones fumble, all the air out of the Green Bay bubble. You don't give Tom Brady a second chance. From that point on, drove down the field, scored. Play calling, emptied the playbook. The Edelman passed. They were awesome. Do the math. They're 3-4-1, and one, Green Bay is. 6-2 and two is the bare minimum they need in the second half to get to 9-6-1. and one. And in this year's NFC, that may not And they not, made the playoffs at that, that, that exact record it. once before. But I don't think it's going to cut it. Not with the way the NFC South is surging right now. Uh, I don't know if that we'll see another team maybe come from the NFC West. We certainly know it ain't no second team coming from the <laughs> NFC East. But I think he knows it's over. Um, I wow. think he knows that year two non-playoff is on the way. Changes on the way. Mike McCarthy is likely going to be removed. And, you know, that may be invigorating for him next year. I think right now he realizes this is an uphill climb that I can't. He's not telling anybody to relax. No R-E-L-A-X mm -hmm. this time. Right. Uh, I think he knows. Was it, is it Kaiser time? Is he just going to say, like, oh, my knee hurts too much? Is he going to shut it down and no. wait for next year? No. No. His knee's basically healed. I think he just realizes this is going to be kind of a – ugly slog to the end of whatever whatever comes next so mm -hmm. but anyway it did feel a little bit like a letdown i mean i know it was a good game into the fourth quarter but then the packers did nothing with their last four drives and it just didn't have that it didn't have that memorable finish so. yeah the fumble ended the competitive <laughs> yes aaron, right. aaron jones ended the game it like, did it's and it's like i actually feel bad like so that was the first time i got to watch aaron Rodgers play in person and it was one of those things that, like, I'd been looking forward to for a long time that I'll probably never forget that I'll take away from here when my time is said and done that I got to watch that guy play, yep. like, right in front of me on the field. And it's like, I'm thinking about last week, Ty Montgomery robs him of a chance to go down and that knock off the unbeaten Rams. This week, they, they're, they're cutting through the Patriot defense like a knife through butter on that drive. Yep, They're going in. They're going to take a touchdown lead going into the fourth quarter. And you that felt the momentum shift at following the Patriots getting stuffed fourth and goal, yes. right? And the Packers are driving. Every, the stadium was pin drop quiet. Correct. And the Aaron Jones fumble changed everything. You go up by a touchdown there into the fourth quarter. That game, I'm not saying the Packers necessarily win the game, but it's not going to be a two-touchdown you know, outcome in favor well, of the we, we could have seen 27-24 one way or the other, or 30-27 one way or the other. So his running backs have basically betrayed him two weeks in a row, and I think we're going to look back to the Ty Montgomery decision to take the ball out as the death knell of the 2018 Packers. And 
There, therefore, you can look at all the signs that were in the Gillette stands Sunday. There are a lot of fire McCarthy signs here. Packers fans were great, by the way. I talked to a bunch of them in the lot before nice the game. People. They're great. Yeah. Pe- they're great and they, fans. And they, and I'll give them credit. They came out in droves. This they did. Oh, they, with Packers. there were hotels all the way up to Brighton that were chock full of Packers fans, 20 miles in any direction. They travel well. They're great tailgaters. And they all were like, I, you know, we think Rodgers is better, but you know what? You guys have Belichick. I should, I, and I spared you my bad Green Bay accent. But that's it, that's exactly, hey, Don, hey, that's exactly, they came in, Wawa, go, they, go came, pack, they came in from Fondi, Eau Claire, Wawa Tulsa. Yeah, they, they all said the same thing to a fan. We think Rodgers is better. We like R12 better. Fine. But they're, they're like, down they're, on McCarthy. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Big time. Yeah. It, it, it's, it really is a, a fact of most NFL franchises that there's a I, shelf life for coaches. I just thought I had this kind of weird feeling after the game, and, and this uh, we'll let it go after this, but I was kind of looking forward to the setup of the – it was 17-17, mm-hmm. late in the third quarter. The Packers are driving to go ahead, right? It was setting up for the last quarter of you know Rodgers-Brady kind of going back and forth and maybe whoever had the ball last was going to win, and it was going to be a last-second finish. And that's the way the game was kind of setting up, and that fumble, pretty careless fumble, like you're an NFL tailback. You like Unless you get a helmet on a ball, you can't just have someone parring at the ball and it mm-hmm. come out that easy. That fumble kind of, I felt, robbed us, robbed me, being selfish, of that kind of photo finish that I was hoping for. Exactly. Our guest today is going to be a good one. Uh, we're going to have Seth Wickersham, senior writer for ESPN, the magazine. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the man who penned the article ran on January 4th, almost 10 months ago, about the level of um, know, creative tension in the uh, right. Patriots organization last season, which obviously a lot of people followed up on. Actually, some people had actually predated uh, getting around the edges. But Seth's story obviously took off on a national scope and put the spotlight throughout the postseason on the Patriots. So we're going to get his thoughts on the 2018 Patriots, uh, a few other league topics, but where he sees them now um, when it looks like we're on mm-hmm. on our way to another uh, same old, same old New England Patriots-type season, first round bye most likely, and then they take their shot. Five of the last six seasons, Patriots 7-2, and two, the one year being 2015 when they went 9-0. and oh. The more things change in New England, the more they stay the same. And I'll tell you, I w- – I, I'm not just saying this because we're going to get a chance to talk to him in a few minutes. When I read that article, I was almost glad because it gave me something else to read, something else to talk about, some fodder during the bye week so we didn't have to make up any storylines. I said it here in the podcast. We discussed it at length. Who in the world has not been in a long-term what they perceive to be successful or at least tolerable relationship and at some point not had tension? If you haven't, then you're asleep at the wheel or you don't care. Well, it was. It was amazing to think that we really hadn't, heard of kind of any cracks or fissures in the relationship whatsoever all this time and then last year again in a number of sources they started kind of seeping out but uh we're going to talk with seth a little later i want to go on a quick rant about the mvp vote in the american league because last night the three finalists uh, donnie baseball's the back, three baby. finalists were announced we kevin you're gonna have to help me on this one i'm sorry um in my book, David Price actually had it right. He said Mookie was the MVP of baseball, but J.D. was the MVP of the Red Sox. And I kind of agree with mm-hmm. that. I all all year long felt like J.D. Martinez, who did not finish in the top three finalists for the AL MVP, despite widely being thought of as 1-2 right there with Mookie in some order. Um, I, I thought he was the, the, the added piece of the puzzle that made the Red Sox what they were offensively. Because otherwise, you had pretty much the same team that had no David Ortiz in 2017 and right. and had no pop. So the idea that the the analytic war crowd, which is wins above replacement, Ugh. have had him ranked seventh in the AL, that drives me nuts because the man almost won the triple crown. Right, he finished first in RBI, second in homers, second in average. I don't know how you cut that and get the seventh best hitter. And he also won the Hank Aaron Award, which was the, the, the league award for the American League for the top slugger. So right. I, I think that was one of the most ludicrous things I've seen in a long Biggest time. Biggest difference between the 2017 and 2018 Red Sox was, that's right, 15 Jay more Moore. wins and the fact that there was a thump in the middle of the lineup. And it's not just about what did he do there, but it's about the way it affects the hitters above him and the below him. Xander Bogarts had a better season. They all fed off the fact that pitchers feared pitching to him or that when they did, they would pay for it. 
And if you want to say the DH argument, all right, first of all, it's all right. 46 seasons into the DH. Second of all, Get over it. Ortiz was a DH, and he single-handedly changed the course of this franchise. So don't tell me that a DH is only half a player and has to have less value because if Ortiz was a DH for the last 12 years of his career and is going to go into the hall and is going to be probably one of the, what, three most important Red Sox ever, mm-hmm. then, not, the, DH, Rushmore. then yeah. the DH has incredible value potentially. Kevin, did you have any idea that, I mean, Ramirez of Cleveland, Mike Trout, who was on a, what, a fourth-place team? Yeah, wasn't even on my radar. I mean – Unbelievable that they could leave J.D. Martinez. And I'll sound like a Sox fan, and I am, but most baseball fans that I knew and and analysts got caught off guard by this vote, and I thought it was absolutely ludicrous. I thought he was— The only thing I could think of is, you know, the argument of, um, you know, the purists, let's say, of baseball saying they don't want to vote for a DH. Right, but I just—as I just said, David Ortiz was a DH and changed the course of a franchise— and is going to go into the hall. You can't Intangibles. tell me. Intangibles. What, what was the effect that Ortiz had? In addition to the fact that he was the best left-handed hitter in baseball, for, or in the American League, if not baseball, for 10, 12 years. How about the, the effect he had in the clubhouse? How about the, the fear that it threw into the other pitching staff? You game-planned around him. And the middle of the Red Sox lineup became drastically different, and the offense on the whole. Because you had to game plan around J.D. Martinez. We've seen them be able to find a way to game plan around Mookie Betts. He didn't even hit 250 in the postseason. But J.D. Martinez was a difference maker. He changed the temperature, he changed the tenor, and he changed the output of that offense. And to not say that he was an MVP candidate is asinine. What if if he would have won the Triple Crown? I mean, he came very close. What if he would have finished... One, one, and one. Are you mm-hmm. telling me that then he would have cracked the top three? Maybe he would have finished fourth. Yeah, maybe <laughs> he would have gotten a consolation third. It's crazy. An honorary third. It's crazy. It doesn't matter. They won. They won what matters. Nerds and... have helped change the world, Don, but they're also going to ruin it if they keep stuff up, like with war, war, zip. I'm bam, not against flap. analytics. I'm not against it, but that is taking it to the extreme. If he is, you know, seventh in the league in war and. Therefore, he's not an MVP. Use your eyes. My eyes told me J.D. Martinez was probably the most important member of the Red Sox this year. And right. and and I couldn't say it any clearer than that. All right, I think we're probably ready for our guest now, Seth Wickersham of ESPN. He's a guy I've been trying to get on the podcast all year. Uh, a good friend, Seth Wickersham, senior writer for ESPN the magazine. Um, we go back, I don't know, at least 10-plus 10, 10 years or so. And Seth... Um, Welcome to the Cover 2 Podcast. I know uh, it's always fun for you to talk to anyone in Pat's Nation. In in this instance, I do want to start out. We're an NFL-centric podcast. I do want to start out at the obvious point. Roughly 10 months ago right now, um, your story hit uh, on ESPN.com and elsewhere um, that posed the question for Kraft, Brady, and Belichick. Is this the beginning of the end? And obviously... Um, a wildly interesting story that had um, a lot of impact here and elsewhere. I just want to jump ahead now 10 months, given that New England has weathered the offseason dramas and started slowly, as we've seen them do before, and now stand 7-2, and two, look poised for perhaps another first-round bye. Give me your assessment, if you would, of, uh, I guess, of the Pats at midseason after watching... Uh, Rogers versus Brady Sunday night. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, at midseason, I mean, they look like they always do, which is different than they looked the year before, but still is potent. And, um, you know, it is weird how every September we all wonder if, like, they've hit a rut that they might not be able to pull themselves out of, but they do. And, I mean, I know we talk about the West Coast offense and how it revolutionized football for a good 20 years with an array of, of short passes that stretch the field you know, horizontally, and Patriots do that so well. Like I don't know what iteration of it you would even call it because so many of their routes are, are option routes and you know, based off of what the defense is doing, but the way that they are able to pick teams apart uh, with short passes where Brady never even faces pressure and hit the receivers where they have some room to run is, is just phenomenal. It, it feels like we're watching a typical Patriots season in a lot of ways. I, that's how I've 
kind of experience that um, the slow start, the questions about whether uh, the rest of the AFC and the league had caught up to them, uh, and then they figure things out. They're never seemingly as good in September as they're going to be in October and, and, and on in November. Uh, here's here's my question. When your story hit, mm-hmm. I remember, and I, I put this out on Twitter, I remember having the reaction that while this is all incredibly interesting stuff, and, and you, I believe you got a lot of, a ton of great information in the story, I almost felt like, how did this not happen sooner? How The, the marvel is when you have these high-profile egos like Brady, Belichick, and Kraft, how did this not come to full boil much sooner than it than it did, and that maybe that that was the most remarkable thing. Um, I just wonder, if, in retrospect, when you and a lot of reporting that came afterwards obviously vindicated a lot of your reporting. Um, I wondered if you look at it now and think, was there any part of it that you believe, while you got good information, was maybe overstated to you, and you can now see from the perspective of time. While there was dramatic uh, tension going on there, these three seemingly find a way to kind of bury it for the moment to put their best foot forward for for the goal of winning um, another trip to the Super Bowl. Yeah, well, they always do, and they're professional. And I think that, like, the question you posed, you know, about the marvel that it lasted this long was the subtext of the story. It was the beginning of the second section and it was kind of the point of the ending also and um you know the the story was a reflection of what was being said in the building and being said by some of those key characters when they leave the building and um do i think i overstated it i don't think so i think no, i, I meant, did do pretty you, well do you I think, think anyone like, even on tv i always sort of like said you know these are conversations that are happening you obviously, you've seen some of the reporting that came out since then about Brady wanting a divorce and some of these other aspects. I always said my personal opinion was that nothing would change. I did say that on TV and every time I was asked about it. I think that one of the biggest issues, things that happened in the offseason, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, is Josh not leaving. I think that if Josh McDaniels had left, I don't know what the team would have looked like because not only because he serves a vital role, um, but, you know, he I, I don't know exactly what the Patriots would have done on offense. And, you know, if Bill would have um, taken more of an, uh, of an active role in coaching it, and if so, how Tom would have reacted, if they had promoted from within, you know, how that would have worked. Because, I mean, you're talking about Tom Brady. He knows an incredible amount about football at this point in his career, you know, I don't know if the, the typical system that they have would have would have worked. Um, and then you would have had other coaches who probably would have gone with him to Indianapolis. And I think that I think that him staying was was a huge, huge key factor for their off season. And it's something that in you know, my story came out in early January. At that point it was a foregone conclusion outside and inside the building that Josh and Matt were going to leave. And obviously things changed, what was it, 48 hours after the Super Bowl. Right. Uh, just to clarify one thing, I sure. I meant more that perhaps the sources that you talked to, maybe end-of-the-year fatigue, whatever, maybe because they had just been in the middle of all this, maybe they were overstating the import of the, the tension that they saw around them. Do you think no, that's a possibility? I don't, because I'll, t- I'll tell you why. And um, Because this was brewing in before training camp. Like you had Alex Guerrero being more active in the building, taking on more clients. You had the push for the TB12 business. You had them coming off this unbelievable Super Bowl win that you know was unprecedented both in terms of its comeback, but also, you know, it was the fifth for them. And so, you know, they're clearly, everybody is chasing them at this point in for the rest of football history until they get tied or eclipsed. And it was brewing then. And then you had Jimmy Garoppolo and what was going to happen there. So they trade Jacoby Brissett in the preseason, clearly planning on keeping Garoppolo. And then as I've reported, as many of other people reported, 
the long-term plans to keep Garoppolo changed in a very short amount of time. And the way that the trade went down was interesting. The way that Bill Belichick talked about Garoppolo after he traded him was interesting because he had told people inside and outside the building that he was not trading Jimmy. And so did end-of-the-year fatigue factor in? I don't know because I was following this before the season started. And then when the Garoppolo trade happened, that's when I was like, I really need to try to figure out what happened here. And so um, my conversations were of the sense of, is this still happening? Have things been resolved? Because I wasn't trying to write a story based on the last conversation I had with people, but rather a totality of conversations that happened over a period of months. We're talking to ESPN the Magazine's Seth Wickersham here on the Cover 2 podcast with Banks and Stevens. This would be Nick Stevens. Hey, Seth, uh, I want to say on behalf of all of Patriots Nation in a very Seinfeld to Newman voice, hello, Wickersham. Look, I'm sure, you know, Pat's fans have... uh, had some fun. Had some fun with you over the time. Uh, if anything else, rather than ever be critical or upset, I always enjoy the fodder and the fuel because I know it's not time to really get behind or rally the troops until Max Kellerman or some other hot take artist declares the Patriots dead. And of course, ever since he did this season, now they've been on a six and zero run. And you were speaking earlier about how it's amazing that they're able to do it time and again. Uh, five of the last six years, nine games in, the Patriots have been seven and two. And I agree with you on the whole idea that keeping McDaniels is what allows them to be completely different yet ever the same every season and maintain some some of that continuity. Uh, I just want to know how how the reception has been from Pat's Nation. You travel up this way. Uh, it's got to be. I mean, it's just like when the Patriots go to Tennessee or anywhere. You know, they're public enemy number one, or at least you know they have fun. You know, here comes the bad guy. How's the nation been to you ever since the piece back in January? I don't know. It's tapered off quite a bit. You know, I think that like good. You know, it didn't when it, when it first came out. Like I didn't, I had to change my Twitter settings. The, the app wouldn't even work. Like whatever was going on out there, I missed it. And so I'm sure right. that there was a couple not so friendly things that were sent my way that I simply am completely unaware of, and probably better off in life that I did that. But you know, all of my in-laws are from Boston. One of my in-laws has been going to Patriots games since the '60s and used to go out drinking with the players after the game. And um, ah, the good old days. So the good old days, right? So how did that go? I mean, yeah. How does how did things? Well, I think what I did was, you know, they kind of knew that I was working on something, and so you know, I'd sort of, I think I sent them the link saying, like, you know, cases comes up at Christmas or in case. (laughs) (laughs) Dot dot dot. Um, You know, they're they don't they don't like jump at me about it. I mean, you know, look, I've written about the Patriots. Essentially, I graduated from college the same year that Tom Brady did. he got his break in '01, and that's essentially when I started writing regular, regularly for ESPN Magazine. And I've written a lot about the Patriots. I've written about Brady, you know, at his house. I've written about him from his Super Bowl party. I've written a lot about Bill Belichick. Um, and so, you know, obviously this story and the story from 2015, from Spygate to Deflategate, trying to get inside why, you know, the NFL just went after the Patriots so hard over an equipment violation that they weren't even really able to conclusively prove. Because it was a make-good um, in a lot of ways for Spygate, right? Exactly. I mean, that's what I, uh, uh, perce- you know, again, it was a perception. I mean, all this stuff was about perception. That it was a perceived light penalty for Spygate that, you know, obviously the league went after the Patriots just incredibly brutally and then dug in, um, you know, a- after this, you know, maybe footballs were deflated. Right. Wild overreaction to the yeah. wild overreaction. Yeah. Right. So uh, but, I think that, like, since then, you know, they look, you know, they know I'm not on the team. It's okay. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't know. It's like, I don't get um, online, you know, every now and then, you know, people will come after me. The funny thing is, is that, uh, you know, we wrote a story that uh, in, in 2015, Spygate to Deflategate, and, you know, it was about, you know, behind the, the Deflategate penalty, and Sports Illustrated came out with a story the same day that was not the same story, but it was sort of about, again, the perception that the Patriots, um, you know, violate rules, and so this is the one thing they got caught on, right? And in it, in their story, they had the, the Patriots give their opponents 
warm Gatorade. Right, I remember mm-hmm. that. I'm not disputing that reporting. I don't, I've never heard it. I'm not disputing it. But people attribute it to me all the time, which is really kind of a funny, um, yeah. a funny aspect. I, I never reported about warm Gatorade. But unsurprising. Yeah. It stuck to me. Unsurprising. Or, yeah, or, the, or that they always, like, they'll, they'll think of Mike Tomlin whenever they think about, oops, the headsets went out in Foxborough again. Every yeah. team's always going to compete for some sort of home field advantage, and they're under no obligation to warm the benches or roll out the red carpet for the opponents. It's called home field advantage for a reason. See Auerbach, comma, red for the way things used to work. And I agree with you about how the league, I mean, everyone agrees about how they overreacted to Deflategate. I mean, short of making Tom Brady, you know, uh, walk naked and have vegetables thrown at him as they scream, shame, shame at him. I mean, the league went wildly overboard. But the larger point to me is that, you know, for the ups, the downs, for the league violations uh, and everything, you're just doing your job because the Patriots are always the most, usually the most compelling team. And they're good for the brand and they're good for entertainment because they give us something to talk about other than just like Le'Veon Bell or what's wrong with the Cowboys. There's no doubt. And this is, nobody will believe this, but this is the absolute truth, is that I did not see my Patriots story taking off the way that it did because... Other people had written about it, like Tom Kern had written about it, right. Albert Breer had, had written about it. You know, you had the Boston Globe, Bob Holer story about Alex Guerrero. You know, there was, this was part of the conversation that was going on up there, and I thought what I was doing was trying to add some context to it and add some detail, and, you know, I've done that with other stories about the Seahawks and about how that play at the goal line kind of broke that team, and I, I didn't see it becoming this sort of event that it became and i know that people get accused of writing things for clicks and that type of thing it, it honestly was not what i was trying to do or what espn was trying to do and i didn't see it i thought people were going to say yeah we know about a lot of this and you know this we can we can discuss the new parts or try to talk about it in a broader context but it had been written about like tom curran wrote a, a you know a story saying it felt like that this might be it for this team and that's essentially what I said also and um, again you had you know Tom Brady looking you know wanting a divorce from Belichick that came out in the Ian O'Connor book on Bill Belichick and so um, you know there is no question that's where I really learned I, I should have known and maybe I sound naive but it is what I really learned what a conversation driver the Patriots can be because again. People in Boston knew about a lot of this stuff. Right. Uh, two things. Sure. You, you had better detail. Uh, you had richer detail. You had m- more uh, voluminous detail. And you also had a bigger platform with ESPN. And I think those two things sure. obviously um, combined to make that story a bigger splash. Very quickly, and we'll let you go. I just wanted your take on a couple NFL topics. Um, sure. I, we, we've already had coaching change in Cleveland. I happen to think it's also on the way in Green Bay, likely. Baltimore likely, Dallas likely, Denver, Tampa Bay, and possibly the Jets. But I'm fascinated what's going on in Oakland with John Gruden. And obviously the marriage is going to be a long-term one. Any any insight or analysis you can offer to what Gruden is up to, are they legitimately, quote-unquote, tanking or, or stripping it to the bones in a rebuild right before our eyes, or do you think there's a lot of just below the surface dysfunction going on already uh, in in that uh, front office? Well, what what's the, what was the number one criticism of John Gruden as an announcer? It was that he loved everybody. Right, that players could do no wrong. I'll tell you what, Wickersham, I like this guy right here. I like <laughs> this guy a lot. Yeah, he he loves he, everybody. Yeah. Right, he did. Yes, you. But the criticism of John as a head coach is exactly the opposite. Is is that he hates everybody on the roster? Yeah, that nobody is good enough. I mean, like to a certain extent, Rich Gannon is like the only guy who yes. <laughs> has ever, you know, captured John Gruden's heart for, I mean, for longer for longer than like five minutes. You're absolutely right. Rich Gannon and Charlie Garner. I think that's it. Yeah. Like two guys. You're absolutely right. I've always said he has this perpetual, the grass is always greener for the guys that he doesn't have on the roster. He's always in love with the quarterback he doesn't have on his roster. Um, Brad Johnson went through this even after winning a Super Bowl with with Gruden. Yeah. And Sean King and whoever else was still in Tampa Bay. It's You make a good point. It's Gruden being Gruden in this case, um, never being happy with the guys he has on his own roster. 
Yeah, and I mean, I don't think they're tanking. I think that that's it. It's just that, like, he gets there and he realizes that he's drawn up all these elaborate plays and ideas that they can't execute. And I think the problem is, is that you have to coach the players that you have. And there's going to be a new batch that comes in next year, and he's going to have to own those guys. And, you know, you kind of get your one year where you can change things around and say, well, this is a result of the previous regime. But, you know, again, he's the coach there. He's going to be there for a long time. And I think that he has to develop more of a GM mentality where he sees the broader picture and isn't just a shrewd offensive coordinator whose players can't live up to the playbook that he's put together. Uh, you know, I don't think he's necessarily jazz coaching, but by this, you know, and just sort of making it up as he goes. But by the same token, it sort of reeks a little bit of like Joe Gibbs 2.0 in Washington right now. And geez, he's only on the hook for nine more years at ten million bucks a year. Yeah, but Joe Gibbs went yeah, to the you, playoffs you two, watch, two out of you, four years. That's true. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's still largely associated with being a, a, ba- a bad return act, if you will. Yeah, the Joe is, Gibbs. I mean, what does Bill Belichick do during games? You watch him during frown. Games. He's watching the game. He is managing the game. He's not staring at a play sheet. He's not, you know, you see Andy Reid, who sits next to um, Patrick Mahomes sometimes, as the defense is, is on the field. It's like he's essentially disconnected from that part of the game at that moment. And I find it really fascinating. With As a head coach, you have to learn how to manage a game. And when you watch Belichick coach, he is not screaming at players. He's not staring at a play sheet, he's watching the game. It's like a great moment at the, that, that was the prelude to the Malcolm Butler interception was that he saw confusion on the Seattle sideline and was like, I'm not calling a timeout. I'm not going to let him off the hook here. And that was a ninja move. And it's also a move that other coaches who are staring at play sheets, like Mike McCarthy, like Gruden, um, you know, a lot of these coaches are great coaches. They're, you know, they've won a ton of games. But as we see with the Patriots every single year, the little things add up. And that's a little thing that ends up being a big thing that he has absolutely mastered. And if I were a head coach in the NFL, that's what I would be watching. To manage the game, you actually have to watch it. You can't be staring at a play sheet. Real quick, Seth, uh, just wanted to get your take as we uh, last question. Uh, nine games in now, huge one last Sunday in the Superdome. Uh, do you think, we've been talking about it a lot here on the show today, that New Orleans now has pole position in the NFC? Well, I mean, they have a quarterback who's playing the best football of his career and can make any throw on the field. And you've got to, I mean, is there a scarier sight in football than Drew Brees walking to the line of scrimmage after a big completion and when the camera flashes to Sean Payton calling the next play? I mean, that is a team that is on the move, and they are aggressive. And when they have to settle for a field goal, they look like... Feels like failure. Insulted their family. Yeah. I mean, it's like they look so upset. They push and it. So, they push it. You know, they push it. They push it. Yeah. And to beat the Patriots, you know, obviously they only meet in the Super Bowl, but to beat the Patriots, you have to have a quarterback who can read the entire field. And very few guys can. I mean, you, Aaron Rodgers can. I don't think they were very creative on, on offense. And they made things hard on him by never ending up in second and short. But, like, this is a guy who can read the field. And Drew Brees can read the field. And. You know, I think that they're 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 a potent team. I I think that like they have to get home field. You know, generally dome teams don't travel well, but man, they look they they are a scary team right now because every time Drew Brees drops back to throw, hitting guys that are wide open. He's he and he's hitting windows that normal quarterbacks don't see. And we might have Des Bryant a saint any minute now. Uh, oh man, reports are accurate as well. So popcorn ready. Another potential yeah. weapon. Thanks so much. Seth Wickersham, senior writer for ESPN The Magazine, has been our guest on the Cover 2 podcast. Seth, we kept you twice as long as we promised. Uh, Great stuff, and thank you for being on the Cover 2 podcast with us today. Very brave of you. Thanks, gentlemen. Take care. Thanks, Seth. All the best. All right, thanks to Seth for that. Um, You know, I agree with him. The Saints look like that team right now um, that puts every defense back on its heels. I'd only throw out one caveat. Carolina Panthers, and I know they play a big game this Thursday night at Pittsburgh. Um, Potentially the game of the week, Week 10, is the Thursday night game. Right. The Carolina Panthers have something going with Norv Turner on offense, and let's not forget, in Weeks 15 and 17, they play their two games against New Orleans. In between, the Saints play Pittsburgh. So the Saints end with Panthers, Steelers, 
Panthers, and those games might be huge. And that's how the Falcons are going to sneak up around the side and steal that NFC South. That's not going to happen. You got the Falcons doing that, huh? <laughs> no, but I'll tell you what, the Falcons might be. What people were saying a few weeks ago, like that may be the best one and four team in the NFL history, and now they're playing some good football. They're four they're and very... four. I wouldn't want them to line up against them right now unless I knew my defense was tight. If the Falcons were in the AFC, they might be my fifth seed. Oh, you know? for sure, for sure. Um, they they wouldn't be ahead of the Chargers. If I'm, uh, no, but they'd be I ahead of Cincinnati. Yep. they they already beat Cincinnati. I want to yep. say they'd be ahead of Tennessee. They'd be ahead of Miami. I think they could beat any team in the AFC South right now. They might be my sixth seed if, if the Falcons at four and four. Yeah, they've won three in a row. They've gotten it together. Um, yeah, I think Carolina is 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 kind of a dangerous team, and they they use their weapons well. I uh, love what they're doing. McCaffrey is now a certifiable. He's a monster right now, and having this DJ Moore kid. I was going to say DJ Moore. the hybrid. I love absolutely as a fan of just flat out good football. Don't peg me as a fantasy wonk or somebody who just wants to see points, points, points. I love the diversification of the of weapons we'll say i love when people are ow's yeah Corderell patterson right now helping out with sony michelle out in new england so he's become a bit of an offensive weapon kick returns wide receiver running back dj moore doing the same thing down in carolina and look how explosive and unpredictable their offense has become since yeah. they started employing that I mean, ow role and greg olson is now a threat again in the middle because they don't have they don't have two people to put on him as right. cam's only target mm-hmm and even Torrey Smith has contributed some this they're, year. They're fun. Yeah. yeah. And I, I have to admit, I did not see that coming. I thought North Turner was an old-school fit with a new-school quarterback in Cam Newton, but they have really kind of diversified, and you don't know what you're getting. They'll they'll trick play you as well. So my only point is, as good as the Saints look, I think they got a ways to go. They've got a tough schedule. Right. I think the Rams' winning percentage of opponents left is over 100%, over 100 points lower than the Saints'. So yeah. schedule wise, I think the Rams have and, it easier. And having game and having NFC West games where their only challenge could be this Sunday at home facing the Seahawks, who always play them tight and especially play them have played them well in the Coliseum since the move. Right. Uh, I I think the Saints though, the one thing that they have going for them, and we'll see if they sign any of the receivers they're bringing in, Brandon Marshall, Des Bryant, I think Bryant would actually be a good fit for them. I think the thing that they have is they have the unfinished business motive. They've got because they really should have been in the NFC Championship yes. last year. And the team has only since really improved. So if they can continue to play the way they have, and if Drew Brees stays healthy and they can keep this double-headed back attack going, that's, I don't know. That's, uh, be, that'd be fun. And I, I'd pay to see. I, I would run that game back, whether it's in the Coliseum or the Superdome from last Sunday. Well, it's interesting because both the Rams and the Saints kind of went all in for this season and this, this year's Super Bowl. And... Here they are, neck and neck. Right. Seven to one, eight Goff still on the rookie contract and Drew Brees on the tail end of every move the Saints made was all about this year. You know, let's let's didn't they just make a they made a trade of some sort, I wanna say, where they they got somebody in mid season and it was it, Sean Payton came out and admitted everything's about winning now. Um they're going for it and why wouldn't you when Drew Brees... They just picked up Eli Apple. Right. Eli Apple from the Giants, a young right. cornerback, first-round pick. It's all about going for it right now. And and Drew Brees is, what, 39, playing mm -hmm. as well as ever? Straight up, legit question. It's kind of a sidebar, but speaking of Eli Apple. Giants or the Raiders play Alabama neutral field this weekend? <laughs> What's the spread? I'm, I hate that question. I will say... <laughs> Bama! <laughs> the roll tide. Are you kidding the way... College, playing? college kids, pro players, no comparison. But I see what you did there. I, I, I honestly think Raiders Giants. I thought that's where you were going. That oh, would be scoreless, who would watch scoreless that? tie. Don, I'm I, Don. I'm not into shame porn. Scoreless Good lord, tie. I would never watch that. Scoreless tie. Um, so you said something interesting on our drive here. You said at the AFC halfway point, we have four definitive teams in the AFC. I believe we do. Yes. All right. Who are they? I think obviously Kansas the City. Chiefs, Patriots, Steelers. Okay. Well, I think, uh, and I agree with your point that I think they've basically locked up the I AFC think, North. I think they want it at Week Nine. I think they want it on Sunday. And if they get Le'Veon, if Le'Veon comes back by the thirteenth and commits to the program, or at least showcases himself, I'm not himself, convinced that he is. I don't know if he is either. I, I really don't. He just bid farewell to Miami. Did a little. He the, spelled the, farewell the, wrong. Yep, which was awesome. <laughs> Nailed that. 
boy, if he plays half as well as he tweets, then I'm not sure what we can look forward to. But if he comes back, and I'm not sure if he would want a complimentary role or expect to be the featured back, I'm not changing the chemistry of that oh, team right now. they're not making him the featured back. They're not putting Connor on the sideline for long. Him. Connor looks great, and he's got fresh legs. But yeah. maybe Bell does, Plus too. Plus, he's going to be a Stealer in 2019, and for Bell, sure. Bell isn't. Right. Uh, and the other team is, I like what the uh, form, the artist formerly known as the San Diego Chargers. I refuse to call them Carson Car- Chargers. Carson Chargers. The fake, Angeles, the fake Angeles Chargers are doing. If they get a kicker, and they've cut their 17th kicker on the season, Caleb Sturgis, we hardly knew the. If they, there's some, there's got to be a jinx about the kickers there, too. What is it with them in Tampa Bay? Neither I one of them know. can find a kicker. No. I agree with you. But that the was the curse the, of Aguayo. Wasn't that the first win where you felt like it was a legitimate first rate win of the season for the Chargers? I think that's why they, they haven't gotten a huge love. play in the final play of the game. Right. They went and beat a quality opponent in a hostile environment. Should have been more comfortable if they get two field goals and an extra and a PA, pointer. A PAT. He had missed Caleb Sturgis had missed six extra points. What is it about the bolts on the helmet that makes kickers pee down the side of their leg? I don't know. What's the last good one they had? Rolf Bernerska? Somebody back then? I don't know. They, they've they had good kickers. Wasn't Novak. Who was the kid back in 2006? Who oh, was John Carney was a good kicker in, yes, in San Diego for yes. a long time. So. I, I agree with you. I think that for um, I'm trying to see. Not if sold I can, on Houston yet. I'm not if entirely sold on Houston. If I can blow holes in that at all, I guess it would be give Houston a little more credit for their defense. Hey, I'm not sold on Cincinnati either. Boy, there's a lot of teams that look done in the AFC. Mm-hmm. Miami, I'm sorry. You might be 5-4. and four. You're headed for 7-9. and nine. Mm-hmm. The Jets are done. The Bills are done. Tennessee, after the Monday night win at Dallas, deserves some attention now. If they play like that, we'll know so much more because uh, everything is going to be about the Malcolm Butler Bowl. The Butler Bowl. It's all going to be all Deion the same Lewis, retread Mike story. Mike Right. John Robinson. Right. There's a, there's a, there's I mean, a, there are a lot more Patriot connections, but all we're going to hear about all week is going to be Butler. You're headed to Nashville. Nashville I am, I am is Foxborough South. Yes, and if any listeners of the podcast are going to be in the area or are making this the big road trip, because it seems like Pat's fans generally pick one game to make the big road trip, and this year it's Nashville. We'll be having a big Pats rally. So, Frisky you, Frogs on Saturday night. So if you see Nick drunk on Broadway, mm-hmm. and, and you'll know what I mean. Think I'm gonna get Help off. him home. You think I'll be able to drive getting off the plane? Come Help on, him. let's go. Help LFG. Him home. Kev, go- you're shaking your head. You know you want to party Nick, with us. Hey, I wish I was going. I know. I wish you were going with us. Kev's yeah, going to be a grown-up. Nick will be honky. <laughs> Nick will be honky tonk. You're working at, all day. Nick, you got to go one place. It's okay. called Williams. Williams. Yes, it's on Broadway. Okay. It's it's a semi-famous country western music bar. Okay. You have to go in there for a couple songs. Go to Williams. Everybody that lives in Nashville has been to Nashville knows about Williams. It is honky tonking at its finest. Absolutely. You can't. You can't. You know, you, you can fall backwards into a good honky-tonk in Nashville, mm-hmm. but you don't want to miss Williams. So write that down, kids. On it. Uh, um, after I get some Hattie B's hot fried chicken, I'm, I'm I will go. say this. Houston, you may not have your respect yet, but there was that hilarious clip uh, of Bill O'Brien, the Texans coach, caught on video late in the first half after Vance Joseph, Denver's embattled second-year coach, making a blunder. Uh, in going for a long field goal, missed it, um, or McManus missed it, and it gave Houston a chance with two quick plays in 18 seconds to kick their own field goal. They end up Denver losing by two points, and so that three points was instrumental. And video seems to be catching Bill O'Brien saying some rather less than flattering things about Vance Joseph, calling him a dumb blank friend. Ah, and here he is. Having the time of his life. That's what he must have been saying. I think he was probably thinking, where's Sergio Dip when you need him? Uh, but, yeah, it, it looked like he said, thanks, Vance, you dumb blank. Um, Bill. It makes me just love Bill O'Brien. I know. Time. That is a beautiful thing. If Bigger he, fan than I was yesterday. <laughs> because we have suspected that Vance Joseph, as a head coach, is going to make a hell of a defensive coordinator mm-hmm. in this league. Um that is one of the things that came out of. Um, so there you go. I think we're looking forward to the Thursday night game. I like I like must-watch Thursday football. Uh, Pats-Titans should be a game. There's watchability to Saints-Bengals and maybe uh, 
Seahawks, Rams, but after that, the week the week nine slate, it's a the week ten slate. Week ten slate. Yeah, I I, yeah. I would agree with that. It's Seattle, more W E A K slate. Seattle at the Rams, New Orleans at Cincinnati, Carolina Pittsburgh, and and maybe Pats. I'm not yeah. sure that Titans are going to give the Pats a great game. I think it's seven seven wins in a row for the Patriots. Yeah, against six. the Titans, uh-huh. and the average margin has been 20.3 points. So it's like three touchdowns. Well, you've got the classic. If anyone knows, Vrabel knows Brady. All the cornerbacks know Brady, but at the same time, Brady practiced against them. So Give me some I, Jeff Fisher, though. We're not taking I'm any. not going 7-9. and nine. <laughs> Not putting up with any of that 7-9 and nine bull blank. <laughs> Uh, what is Jeff? Jeff's doing Fox, Where, yeah. I think, these days. <laughs> Wherever yeah. he is. He's got a multi-million dollar estate, estate in Montana. I would be fi- I would be at Whitefish counting my money. Well, laughing. I would say this. Um, Jeff Fisher is going to be joined in the unemployment line, I think, by a lot of coaches. We talked about it briefly, but I think Mike McCarthy, Jason Garrett, Dirk Cutter, Vance Joseph, uh, maybe Todd Bowles. Uh, John Harbaugh, there's a lot of guys. The two most interesting ones to me next year will be who coaches Aaron. Who I think everyone's going to run to try to be the coach. They're going to look Bay. for a Sean McVay type in Green Bay. Yeah. Somebody who is a young, brilliant offensive mind. To what about work. Dallas? Who's going to, Who's going to? I mean, that's still a plum job. I, it is, is it, though? It is because it's da- the I, Dallas I, I'm Cowboys. I'm not sold on Dak. Yeah, maybe, maybe but it's a dysfunctional front office. It's a very dysfunctional front office. They just, I'd rather go to Cleveland than I would Dallas, and I, those words just came out of my mouth. Yeah, I heard them. Yeah. We're going to save that clip. No, I agree with you. Cleveland's got a better upside if you look at the roster. And I, don't you feel like Dak Prescott's already played the best ball of his NFL career and it yeah. came as a rookie? Mm-hmm. I don't, Aaron Rodgers stole his playoff soul, and since then it's been all downhill for don't, Dak. Don't like what I see there. And then, of course, uh, we talked with Seth about Oakland, but that is, to me, the reigning debacle in the NFL right now. So, anyway, Week 10, let's hope it gets a little bit better than it looks on paper. Uh, We will be back at you next Tuesday to talk more NFL football on the Cover 2 podcast. Thanks to Seth Wickersham. Thanks to Kevin Collins, our producer, my co-host, Nick Stevens, who will be in Nashville. Uh, Say hi to him if you see him down there. I'm Don Banks. That's another Cover 2 podcast. You've struggled with me and my cough. Thank you very much. Thank you for downloading the Cover 2 podcast from Patriots.com. Second and goal to go from the two. Toss sweep right for James White. Cuts it under the right arm. Cuts it upfield. Driving forward. It's diving to the goal line. It's going. A touchdown. It's and a title for the Patriots. It. I can't believe it. They have completed the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. Log on to Patriots.com anytime for more news and more podcasts covering your favorite team and all things NFL.